welcome to Kingwood United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining us today. Wherever you're listening from and whatever service you're listening to, we strongly believe because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there is always more to life. We're going to be starting a new sermon series uh, called Thrive. But before we get into that, um, I don't know if Bert made the announcement in here. I made it when I was over there, because I can say whatever I want over there. Uh, But uh, the Board of Ordained Ministry has recommended me for full ordination as elder this upcoming annual conference. So that's a big accomplishment for me. It was a, I think it was a 12-year-long process from when I felt the call into ministry at age 16 until now at age 28, uh, It's too long, one could argue, but I've done it, it is here, and so that'll be May 31st down in downtown. I think details will be coming out if you want to go to that. So, we're in the middle of our new Eastertide sermon series called Thrive, looking at if Jesus truly rose from the dead, which we heartily believe that he does, how does that affect our everyday life? What does that mean? Why should we care about the resurrection? What are the implications of the resurrection in our everyday life? And we're starting off our series of thriving that if Jesus is fully alive, that means that we too can be fully alive. That thriving means that we are people who are fully alive in Christ. But what does that word thriving mean? When we talk about the word thriving, what tends to come to our mind when we think about people who are thriving? I think oftentimes we may have a worldly view of what thriving often is, and we take that sort of worldly view and we take it and apply it to the church. What we'll see here in a second is Scripture teaches us a different way of thriving. But some of the ways that we look at the world's definition of thriving is it has to be bigger, better, newer, faster, more expensive. That it's this idea of just more, 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 that that's truly what it means to thrive. And so we'll take that and we'll apply it to the church. I don't know if you've ever lamented over the fact that things aren't the way that they used to be pre-COVID. That pre-COVID, it seems like there were a lot more people in the pew, or we did this before COVID, or we used to do this, and it seems like now, after that, we're not really thriving as a church anymore. In our numbers-obsessed culture, we have equated numbers of people in the pew with holiness and transformation, as if those were one and the same. That we've taken this worldly metric of bigger, better, more, that if we can just be the largest church in the conference, or if we can just have the most people at our church in Kingwood, then somehow that makes us successful, that somehow that means we as a church are thriving, that we've taken that worldly metric, baptized it with Scripture as if that makes it the primary metric and the primary way that we should look at our church and look at ourselves. And so we look around and we ask, based off that metric, are we thriving because we don't do this anymore or we don't do that anymore? Are we thriving because we don't? And then just fill in the blank. What does it mean to be people who are thriving, to be people who are fully alive in Jesus? 
The biblical view of thriving means that we are fully alive in Christ. That in light of the resurrection, the scriptures paint a picture of what it means to be fully alive. So if you have your Bibles with you and you want to open them up, we're going to be out of the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 17. We're going to be reading verses 5 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wasteland. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord whose confidence is in him, they will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in the year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. And so in the scripture, we see that fundamentally that thriving That to be fully alive means that we are a people who dwell with God. To be fully alive, to live with the resurrected Jesus means we are a people who dwell with God. Or as Jesus himself says, become friends of God because we serve a risen and resurrected Savior. That is what it means to be fully alive. Jeremiah the prophet, he draws this contrast between those who dwell with God, those who live their life uh, with, it says, its roots going into the water, and then those who don't. That there's these kind of two different paths that you can take in your life. Either one who dwells with God, who pours out their life to the Lord, and then the one who doesn't dwell with God. The one who doesn't dwell with God, according to the scripture here, It says that they they trust in man, they trust in humanity, they put their trust and their confidence in people. That when things, that they're reliant on the things of this world, they're reliant on other humans, not on God. It says, too, that they draw their strength from mere flesh. So not only are they solely relying on other people, they're relying on their own strength, their own wits their own intelligence, their own money, their own devices, that they put their reliance on themselves. And those whose hearts turn away from the Lord, that because they're so reliant on the people around them, they're so reliant on themselves, on their strength, on their own devices, that they put their trust in the things of this world rather than putting their trust in God that they neglect the spiritual dimension of life that the church fathers say our hearts are yearning for. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find our rest in thee. Or as C.S. Lewis said, uh, God made us like a car, that we need gas to be able to go, and the gas of life is God himself. That there's something about being human that means that we need to be connected to the divine because God did not create us to exist apart from him. And yet there's those people who choose not to dwell with the one who created them, who choose not to dwell with the one who can fill the desires of their soul. 
And Scripture says the fruit of this life is one that leads to the desert. It leads to a place where there is no life because they've been disconnected from the source of life. You know, when you take, uh, I'm a very beginner level gardener, but even I know if you take a plant and you don't water it, the plant's going to die. Or if you take a plant and it's sitting next to a stream and you remove it from the stream, the plant might last for a little bit depending on how strong the tree is or how strong the plant is. But eventually, the plant disconnected from the stream, the plant who is not watered, will one day wither and die. And that's the analogy that Jeremiah is giving of the life of the person who does not dwell with God, that they are like people living in a desert, living in a land of salt. It's land of salt meaning that there's nothing that can grow there. No life can grow in the salt land. That their dwelling place is not with God. And yet, there's this other picture that's contrasted. That we can be one of these two people. What's interesting about this is uh, the hard reality that Jesus teaches and the hard reality that I think we sometimes need to reckon with ourselves is you can go to church your whole life and still live like this. You can go to church your whole life. You can sit in the pew every single week, go to Sunday school every single week, and yet your heart can still be distant from God. Uh, In uh, his book, The Class Meeting, Kevin Watson says this analogy. He's talking about this example, and he says, uh, you all know people like this. The person who's been in Sunday school and goes to church faithfully every day for 40 years, and yet they're still as mean nowadays as they were 40 years ago. But we know those people. Maybe we are one of those people. You can go and you can still be distant from God because the point is not doing all this religious activity. The point is, are you dwelling and being connected to the stream of life? I read somewhere the other week, Judas heard every single sermon that Jesus gave, and yet he still chose to betray him. That's not about listening to sermons. It's not about doing all this religious stuff. It's about being connected to the source, being connected to the water of life. Wesley emphasized that this is the Christian life, the resurrected life. Being fully alive means that we are people who are connected with God, as the scriptures say, who dwell in the water of life and not like those who live in the dry desert. And so we have this choice. Are we going to be like the desert people? That leads to dryness, death. Or are we going to be like the tree that Jeremiah paints here in chapter or verse 7? Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. That there's a second person that Jeremiah is challenging his audience and also challenging us is which one will you be? Will you be the one who is dwelling in the desert or the one whose roots go into the water of life? Who put their trust in the Lord, whose heart and face is oriented towards God, not towards the world. That being fully alive means that we dwell like a tree planted in the water. 
So this image, there's, this, uh, there's not this passiveness in the scripture. It says in verse 8 that the tree sends out its roots by the stream. That the roots just don't go naturally into the water. It says that the tree sends its roots into the water of life. That the roots are, go out into the stream. That the tree is actively searching for the water. So that when trial comes... When the sufferings of this world come upon us, when the desert's times come upon us, that we are thriving. We are fully alive because we are connected to the water of life. We are connected to the source of resurrection. We are connected to the one who makes our heart leap and dance and sing. That this image of drawing richly from the water of life, I think is this perfect image of the new life that Jesus wants for us to have in him. To be a friend of God. To have our roots go deep into the waters. To sit with the Lord and be discipled by him. You know, the psalm says, be still and know that I am God. And we love to quote that psalm. But how many of us are actually still with the Lord. St. Clement of Alexandria, one of the early church fathers, uses this analogy about us. He says, uh, oftentimes we're like old shoes. We're all worn out except for the tongue. <laughs> but oftentimes in our prayer life, in our Christian life, we're always talking, we're always giving our opinions to God, but how often do we truly sit still in the presence of the Lord and be discipled by him. To be like Martha rather than be like Mary. To be still and know that I am God. To be like a tree and plant ourselves near the water of life. Um, in the, I think I mentioned the prayer book. No, I mentioned it in the vine. That's all right. Uh, there's this book by Pete Gregg uh, who wrote a book on prayer, How to Pray a Simple Guide for Simple People. It's one of my favorite books on prayer. And he has a chapter in there about contemplative prayer, which is contemplative prayer is being still in the presence of God and simply enjoying his presence. And Pete Gregg, he started what was called the 24-7 prayer movement, where he basically had, there's going to be someone praying for the church, for revival for the church for the Lord to pour out his spirit on the church 24-7. And right as he was starting it out, he had a conversation with a man named Brennan Manning. Uh, you may know him. He wrote the Ragamuffin Gospel. And as he was having this conversation with him, Brennan Manning asked him, when do you, have you, when do you know that you've prayed enough? Pete was a little taken aback by the question. Like, what do you mean? How do you know when I've prayed enough? He's like, yeah, you go into your room for an hour and you say your list to God and you check that off your list. How do you know when you've done enough? And he sort of pondered that for a moment and Brennan Manning then sort of answered his own question. And he said, what if instead of going into that hour of prayer during your movement and you giving your whole list to God, what if instead you spent that hour centering yourself on the Lord, listening to the Lord, enjoying his presence. Thanks again for joining us for today's message. We will return to the sermon in a moment, but first... 
We would like to ask for you to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We believe God is doing some amazing things here at KUMC, and your feedback helps our church to reach new listeners that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Now, let's get back to the work. you centering yourself on the Lord makes you a person who, as the scripture says, prays unceasingly because you become aware of the presence of God in your life and you carry that presence through with you throughout your day. So what if that was the way that you prayed? And he said that God changes people through silence, through contemplation. Brendan Manning said that the way to address the world's problem through presence, through practicing the presence of God, through dwelling with God and being connected with Him. Now, friends, as we look at the resurrected life we can have in Christ, the reality is that there is a deeper, more rich way that we can live, of filling ourselves with the Lord every single morning. Recently in my own life, uh, I, was, I was a great list reader to God. God, I have my prayer list. Let me make sure I get this prayer list every single day. I got to make sure I get everything on this list. And then if I have a little bit of time at the end, I'll do some listening. And the Lord kind of convicted me a couple weeks ago, and he said, Jeremy, you got it backwards. You sit and you be in my presence first and enjoy me, and then you bring your asks to me. That's sitting and dwelling with the Lord and being transformed by him is the first priority, and then we engage into the ministry that God has called us to do. That that is the life of a Christian post-resurrection, of dwelling with God. There's this uh, monk, this French monk. His name is Brother Lawrence. Um, He wrote a book, or he wrote stuff, and they compiled it into a book later. It's called The Practice of the Presence of God. It's one of the great spiritual classics. It's really short It's like 75 pages, but it's like large print, 75 pages. So it goes by really quick. Um, The practice of the presence of God. And he was a, a monk born into obscurity, and he died in obscurity. And he wrote about this reality, about how the Christian life needs to be about one who practices being in God's presence all the time. And he says this about the Christian life. Many people... Do not advance in the Christian life because they get stuck in penances and particular spiritual exercises. They neglect the love of God, which is the goal. This could be seen plainly by their works and was the reason why we see so little virtue. The spiritual life is neither an art nor a science. To arrive at union with God, all one needs is a heart resolutely determined to apply itself to nothing but him and do nothing but for his sake and to love him only. John Wesley, in his sermon, The Means of Grace, he talks about this, that these means of grace, scripture, prayer, fasting, taking communion, that these means of grace are exactly that. They're a means, they're not the end. That we don't pray for prayer's sake. We don't read scripture for scripture's sake. We don't take communion because we're supposed to. We take it because doing those things connects us with the love of God. 
Doing those things makes us dwell in his presence. And if we make the means the end, then we've missed the whole point of why we're doing all of this. That the goal of the Christian life is relationship with him, friendship with him, dwelling in his love, that this is what is attainable for us because of the resurrection of Jesus who lives and dwells and sends his spirit among us so that we can be fully alive in him. That we need to be people who dwell and practice the presence of God in our life. The second thing that being fully alive means is that when we dwell with God and are fully alive in Him, we bear fruit. When we dwell with God and we're fully alive, we bear fruit. Jesus says so. In John chapter 15, He says this, I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself and it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like the branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. That the goal and the hope of dwelling with God is that we are people who bear fruit. I used to interpret this passage to mean bearing fruit to worldly ideas of thriving, to worldly ideas of success. I used to think that bearing fruit meant this is how successful you are. This is how well your ministry is doing, how many people are in the pew. But Jesus is starting to show me how truly prideful that was and how contrary to Scripture it is. That bearing bearing fruit is about taking on the character of God. Dwelling in his presence, becoming like him. That fruit is being connected to the water of life, connected to the vine. Dwelling with God, being fully alive in him. And when we are alive, we bear fruit just like a tree does. Uh, The prophet Jeremiah says that you'll be like a tree planted by the stream and the roots are going into the water. And then that tree bears fruit. It bears fruit because we become like our resurrected king, modeling our life after his, our character after his. Church, the culture is in desperate need of people who look more like Jesus and who look less like the world. You're seeing scandal after scandal of pastors who have failed and they're called to holiness and you see the effects that it's having in our culture. What if we today were determined to be a people who dwell in the presence of God and be transformed into him? How can we become a true light? Are we a true light that's been transformed by the gospel of Jesus? Or are we a tree in a desert with leaves on it, with no fruit on our branches at all. What do we look like? Do we look like Jesus or do we look like the world? 
Are we passionate about becoming like Jesus? Or are we passionate about bigger numbers in the pew? Brother Lawrence says this about sanctification, about holiness, about becoming like God. He says this, Our sanctification does not depend upon changing what we do, but in doing for God's sake what we normally do for our own sake. It is sad to see how many people mistake the means for the end, addicting themselves to religious works, which they perform very imperfectly because of their human or selfish motives. The practical way that Brother Lawrence practiced the presence of God, he washed dishes. He worked in the kitchen. He was a monk. He worked in a monastery, and everyone in the monastery had certain tasks, and his job was to work in the kitchen and wash dishes, and he did it for 15 years, and he hated it. He couldn't stand it. But what he decided to do is he said, I will take this task that I have been assigned, and I will do it for the glory of God. That I will take the work that is before me and I will do it for the glory of God. That I will wash dishes and as I am washing dishes, I will invite the presence of God into my everyday life. What if we were a people who consciously lived like Brother Lawrence, who invited the glory and the presence and the love of God into the very tasks that we hate the most? How would that transform the way that we live our everyday life? to dwell in the presence of God, to do whatever you do for God. Uh, my president of undergrad, his name's Chip Pollard, he was a lawyer turned English professor. And my brother was telling me the story this past week um, that before Chip Pollard became a literary professor, he was a lawyer for two years. And he said that he could not stand being a lawyer. If you are a lawyer, I apologize. But Chip Pollard couldn't stand being a lawyer. He hated literally every single second of it. He was not even at a prestigious law firm. So he was like, I wasn't even making a ton of money. So it's like, why am I doing something I'm hating if I'm not even making money off of it? And he said, but I chose to be a lawyer because I felt God call me to be a lawyer. And I would choose to be obedient to God, even if it was something that I hated for a season. And he talked about how when he was a lawyer that there was this one random work trip that he was able to share Christ with a church, with a, with a colleague of his who was an atheist. On a random business trip with a random colleague, he was able to share the gospel with this man. And on reflecting on those two years that he spent being a lawyer, he said, you know, what if God called me to be a lawyer for those two years just so I could share the gospel with him? just so I could act in obedience with him. And he said, to the world, that would look like failure. But in the eyes of the kingdom of God, that's a success. Because whatever he did, he did it for the glory of God. What if there's something in your life that you hate right now? I hated doing landscaping before I did this. I don't know if y'all knew that. I did landscaping for about two years before I became a pastor. I hated it. Hated every single second of it. But there were days that I hated it and I woke up and I said, Lord, let me do this for your glory. Lord, let me work for your glory. 
What if we took those tasks that we hated and did it for the glory of God? That what if we were like that tree planted by the stream? You know, sometimes there's these trees, as I was doing landscaping, there's this one tree that I hated mowing because uh, during the springtime, when the fruit would grow, that the branches of the tree would be drooping, and I had to sit on my riding lawnmower, and I'd just get hit in the face with this fruit. And I'd be trying to mow around this tree, and I'm trying to dodge all these fruit. That what if the Christian life is like that tree that's just dripping with fruit? That there's this massive fruit on the tree that when people come up to the tree, they can't help but have to actively try to dodge the fruit on the tree. That this is what our lives should look like of a tree that is heavy laden down with fruit. I know Bert loves to share in the service always, or share in the service, preach the gospel always, but if necessary, use words. Preach the gospel always means being like this tree. To have the character of Christ, the holiness of Christ, so that everything that you do is done for the glory of God, or you are living so much like Jesus that people can't help but get hit in the face by a massive piece of fruit. That that is the picture of the Christian life, to dwell with God, to be transformed by Him. So how does this look? I'm going to give you kind of some practical ways that you can do this in your own life. You know, sometimes it may be a little intimidating just to be silent in the presence of God. That's okay. We'll be silent on something else. Let's just start by meditating on the Word of God. And we need to be people who dwell within Scripture as well. How can we know the character of God if we're not reading about His character here in the Bible? That scripture reading is not a checklist. It's meant to draw us into the presence of God. It's not a means. It's a means to an end. And that end is to love God more and dwell and be with him. So here's how to meditate on scripture and read it devotionally. Just pick any scripture. Uh, All of it is God-breathed. All of it is authoritative. Just pick any scripture. I was going through Chronicles. And if you don't know anything about Chronicles, uh, the first nine chapters is a list of genealogy pages, and it is the worst. Uh, But I chose to dwell in the presence of God in the reading of names. You can do any scripture in the Bible. And so before you start by reading scripture and meditating on it, start by praying. Say, pray. Pray to God. Say, speak to me, Lord. Transform me. Draw me into your heart and transform me in this reading. And then what you'll do is you'll just read it once. Read the passage once. It doesn't have to be a long chapter. It could be a little story of Jesus. It can be anything. Read it once. Read it just to understand. And then read it again. See what stands out to you. And as you're reading, you're constantly praying, Lord, speak to me in this. Read it again. See what sticks out to you. And then finally, go back and reread that thing that stuck out to you. It could be a word. It could be a verse. It could just be something in that passage. And then what you do is you take that and you bring it to the throne of God and you say, Lord, what do you want to say to me? And you sit with that. And you meditate on that for 10 to 15 minutes. It doesn't have to be very long. And ask the Lord to open that up to you. That if we dwell in the word of God, we're dwelling with God. That this is an easy, practical way that we can become a people who dwell in the presence of God, who are seeking to be transformed by him, to be like that tree planted near the water of life. 
sending our roots down deep into him. You can start with today's text. We have two before you, John 15, Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8. Just start with an easy text. You could go through the Gospels. You can start with the Psalms. You can do anything. But I would encourage you to do this, to become a people who bear fruit, because I so desperately want for us, want for you to be people who are fully alive in Christ. But the reality is, is that I can't make you do anything. I can come up here and I can say the exact same sermon 52 times in a row for a year, and it's up to you to decide whether or not you want to be like the tree that's planted by the water of life, or you want to be like the tree that's in the middle of the desert. Scripture says, or Jesus says, don't be just hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. Don't just leave here and say, boy, that was a nice sermon, and then continue to live in the middle of a desert but choose to be a people who dwell near the water of life, to look within and see where God is calling you to dwell with him. I want to close by saying uh, the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer. Did you put that in the thing? Yeah. Um, So usually we do this at the beginning of the year, but we're going to do it now. Uh, So if you don't know, the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer is a tradition in Methodism where we basically reaffirm our commitment to God. And I'm going to be honest with you, when I've always done the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer, I I hate it. I've always hated it for so long. Um, Because it says things like this, um, put me me to what you will, place me with whom you will. Uh, Lord, I want to pick the people that I want to be with. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Lord, I do not want to be put to suffering. Uh, let, me be, let me be put to work for you or set aside for you. Lord, I don't want to be set aside for you. And I never got why we said this prayer. Until this week, when the Lord illuminated it to me. Jason, if you want to go to the next slide. And it says, And now, O wonderful and holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The next one. You are mine, and I am yours. That Wesley got that as long as we have Jesus, as long as we are connected to Jesus, as long as we are connected with God, everything else on this world is superfluous because we've already got the greatest prize on earth. We are already his and he is ours. So friends, would you stand with me now as we say the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer with this understanding that as we say it, We know that we already have the greatest thing in the world, that we are fully alive with God and we will be fully alive with him forevermore. Would you say with me? I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you. Praise for you or criticize for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth 
let it also be made in heaven.